You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, the podcast with us, Kane and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice, still very much into the spooky spirit here as we come to you just before Halloween and there's so much to talk about. Now coming up we're going to be joined by Ken Dine, you know, that mind reader guy with the Kennedy. No, don't call him Kennedy. No, you may know him as Kennedy. You may know him as Ken Dine. Uh, Kennedy's his sort of performing public persona. Ken Dine, if he ever releases anything through magic, that's his persona there. So, I'm sure he talks more about that during the interview. Not really. Not really. No. But um, we're referring to him as as Ken Dine, so this will come out with Ken Dine on it. But you may know him as Ken. It's the same person, though. It's another Kieran Lethe Fair Johnson incident, isn't it? It is. Yeah, although this this one isn't for marriage. He started a, a trend. Yeah. Uh, Should we change our names? We've already changed our names. Should we change them again? Maybe. Should we get changed? These ones haven't got us any success, have they? Should we change them back? Yeah. Okay, great. Damasio Gonzalez. Damasio Gonzalez. Well, hello and welcome to Talking Sp- Tricks. Speaking of Kieran Johnson Lethe Fair, there's a great clip of him on um, Italian TV. Now I've seen but this as a thing. Should get along and watch. I was going to say I've seen this as a thing, but I haven't seen it. So Kane, give me the give me the lowdown. Is he speaking Italian? No, he's on an Italian TV competition program. All the judges are Italian. They speak Italian. He does his acting English. Well, his version of English, and um, they. <laughs> Uh, there's a dubber, narrator, a translator. There's a translator? There's a translator, but you can't see the translator. Yeah. So I don't know whether it's been translated later. So you can't really hear what he's saying and like some of his, his story, but it's pretty gross. It's, a, it's the most gross thing, the stuff I've ever seen him do. As in what he swallows and brings back. It's just really gross, man. I mean, he's quite, it's quite gross anyway. It's his gross stuff. Right. Is there some food? Just watch food it. Food come back. Just watch it, man. I will watch it. And is that under the Kieran Lever or the Kieran Johnson moniker? Kieran Lever performs on Italian Tally. Now, it's all over Facebook. Maybe we'll put it in the body of this... Uh, we put it in the body of this? We can put it in the body of this. We'll put it in the body of this. Then. Scroll down, in the body of this should be a link to that video for you. Link to Lethier. Link to Lethier. Now, Kay, you mentioned um, watching YouTube videos, which how you spend a lot of your time. No, but I've been watching Baywatch mainly. Baywatch? That's what I've been doing. That's on on the telly. Yeah, on Cypriot TV. Baywatch is a big thing. It's on at 6.40 every day at the Love Boat. But vintage Love Boat, like 70s Love Boat. That's what I've been doing. There's some juggling in Baywatch this week, I hear. On the beach. Was it? Yeah. By here, I mean I saw. Uh, Do you remember the little street kids? Yeah. There was the street, street pugs. Street urchins. Yeah. Going around being like, my brother and I need some money for the bus. Right. Behind her, there was some a mime juggling. Oh, I wonder who that was. Do you think it was an actual juggler performer? I did a bit of research. Yeah. And I can tell you. I don't know. It's just, it's a nobody. It's a nobody. There must have been a Baywatch episode with a, a magician. The magician walked around. 
Mm. We'll have to do some research into that. And if so, we'll bring you on it. But you've not just watched the telly. I hear a filthy rumour that over this Halloween period, you've been looking at shows to go and watch. I know of some shows. There's some live shows on. I might not be able to see some because we're not in England, but... Well, what I will do is, shall I do mine? Go on then. And then you'll be ready for when I've done mine. Because I think I am going to go to a show this Halloween. It's not a particularly spooky show. How do you find events on Facebook? But it's a very good show on Halloween and it runs, it starts on Halloween and it runs until Saturday the 2nd of November. It's The Bright Boys and it's private, a sperm odyssey. It's on at the Soho Theatre. It's an award-winning show from The Pricks that brought you the sellout hit Planet Earth Free. Luke Rollison, Christian Brighty and Tom Curzon. Three lovely boys that we shared a dressing room with at the Brighton Fringe seen at Glastonbury and uh, up in Edinburgh as well. Lovely set of lads doing very good, silly, physical comedy. They are essentially free sperms, free privates, and they must survive their basic training, hostile white blood cells, and the most dramatic ejaculation sequence ever seen on stage to be the first to fertilise the egg and become a beautiful baby. Now, doesn't that sound like a show you'd like to go and see? It's on at 10.15 on those days mentioned, Halloween until Saturday, 2nd of November. I might be there on Halloween unless something comes up. Don't go there and be disappointed if I'm not in the audience, but I may be there. Kane, but what is coming up for you? Have you found your Facebook events? Yeah, there's loads of stuff going on. Go on then. Let's What's the date today? The 30th. Is this going to be out today? It will be out either today, which is the 29th, or tomorrow, which is the 30th. There's a thing called The Night in Soho at Phoenix Arts Club. Oh, yeah. That'll be good. Any, any more on that? Just just the title. That's all people need to know. If you do. want to go to the Phoenix Arts Club, there's a thing on going on at the moment. Um, Peter Groom oh. is going to Woman and Cocaine present. This sounds fun. Woman and Cocaine presents Catherine Hepburn in Christopher Strong, hosted by the Cinema Museum. What does Catherine Hepburn sound like? There's a quote from her. Don't do it. Don't do it in the voice you think she <laughs> Don't do it in the voice you think she speaks in. If you obey all the rules, you'll miss all the fun. Something like that. She probably had a thing in her mouth. If you bear all the rules, you'll miss all the fun. This October, join Women and Cocaine as we search androgynous... I wasn't even expecting that word to be in this thing. Legend Catherine Hepburn's... Was she androgynous? Well, there you go. Pre-code classic Christopher Strong from the pioneering lesbian director, Dorothy Arzner, inventor of the boom microphone. Well, there you go, hey. That sounds fun. When's that? Oh, the 30th. We can't go. I'd like to go to that, actually. But, um... Well, you can go to that without fear that you will bump into Cain and Abel. That you might bump into Peter Groom. Might bump into Peter Groom. Which is a good thing, really. Yeah. Sean O'Keefe. I'm basically just going to tell you what all my friends are doing on the next few days. What you're doing is you're, you're telling us what your friends have said on Facebook they're going to go yeah, to. So, so they probably no, won't go. There's no guarantee Sean O'Keefe, former stand-up comedian and now sterling nurse. Wow. Theatre nurse to the stars. He does the clean-up, doesn't he? He does a very important bit. He's a theatre nurse now. Yeah. Sean O'Keefe. Um, 
Halloween in London. I don't think that's actually an event, is it? He's just going to celebrate Halloween in London. I mean, you let me down there, Keith. Halloween does happen. 30th of October, tonight. Or tomorrow. House of Halloween, Theatre Delhi. With our good friend Neil Kelso. Yeah. Will he be joined by his usual chums? By the mine. Yeah. And Felicity Ferrer. Yeah. Yes. Fantastic. It's that time of year again. Come get spooky, Q-style. With rhinestone witches and sparkling mummies, it's sure to be one fabulous Halloween extravaganza. Who would go to a show like that? I'd go to a show like that. That sounds fantastic. Theatre Delhi. I guess that's a freebie, is it? Free to get in? Yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, oh, little Katie Pritchard is interested in going to Alexandra Bennett. They call me Daddy Punchlines. You know him. I know. Filming at the Etc. Theatre. Hello. He's doing what we're doing. He is. So what, what day is he on? The 30th as well. Saturday? 2nd of November? Saturday the 2nd of November. You could go to Alexander that if you Bennett. want. This is the show. It, this is written by Alex. Hello. Hey, Alexander Bennett here. Doesn't sound anything like Cliff Richard. <laughs> ah, hey, I heard you found my shadow. Ah, Hello, Alexander Bennett here. This is the show I took to the 2009 Edinburgh Fringe, which I'm filming at the Etc. Theatre in Camden. It's dark, silly, filthy, and thoughtful. Come if you like the sound of those adjectives. It would be great to have a full room and a receptive crowd to film the show. Well, that sounds exciting, and we should mention at this point, of course, that we will be at the Etc. Theatre on the 16th of November, filming our show, Split Egg, a magic show. Filming us. twins. Filming us, not the audience. Filming us, not the audience. Yeah. We've sold show. some tickets. We can sell a few more. Yeah. Okay. We're still not making any money. Do you want, uh, do you want to use a few adjectives to describe Split Egg, a magic show about being twins? Uh, yeah, hang on. Are you Googling what an adjective is? No, I'm just thinking. Um, I would say it's dark. <laughs> yes. Silly. Yes. Filthy. And thoughtful. Right, I'd say it isn't one of those. Yeah. Come to the show, find out. Come to the show, find out. Split Egg around the show about being twins. Tickets are available from Citizen Tickets. If you buy a ticket there, Kane, what happens? They plant a tree. They plant a tree in the United not Kingdom. Not us. Not us. We're not getting our hands dirty. Although I have got an allotment now. More on that later. Do you like um, Marvin Gaye? Not you. I take no. I'm not talking to you. Oh, I'm talking to the listener at home. Hello, listener. Do you like Marvin Gaye? You, you there, behind the airwaves. I'm asking the question. Okay. What's your follow-up? Go on. They've said yes. What's your follow-up? Well, see, that's why you, you shouldn't like, steal my lines. You steal you my like, lines during the show. If you like Marvin Gaye, you'll love this show. Hosted by... I don't know who it's hosted by. I have got your phone in my hand. Nate Simpson. Oh, yeah. You'll like the name of the show. This is actually what it's called. I'm not taking the mic. Nate Simpson. What's going on? A Night of Marvin Gaye. At Crazy Cox. Friday night. 
Friday night, Friday first of November. Of November. Um, with a very cocky bass player. Ah, oh, everyone's favourite. He can't eat bread, but he can play a good bass line. Yeah, yeah. Danny. Yeah. Ah, sexy. There you go. There's loads of shows for you to go to if you're in London. Nothing else happens outside of London. No, I do know one thing that's happening in um, Brighton, my new home. Go on. Anyone listening from Brighton, if you like going to the pub in the afternoon, let me know. I now live in Brighton, but I haven't moved into... I've got the keys, but I haven't moved into the house because we're here in the Mediterranean. Um, Blood Red Shoes playing a gig. They're from Brighton, aren't they? Yeah, but it's on the same day that we've got a show. We've got a show? Mm. What day is that? The 16th? No. Of November? Before. Before? The 14th of November. Ah, uh, yeah, we have got that show. Good show. But coming up now is a very good, interesting interview with Kennedy? Kendine? Oh, however you know him, you're going to enjoy it. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Joining us on Talking Tricks is that mind reader guy, Kennedy. Uh, welcome to Talking Tricks, Kennedy. How are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Very well, thank you. People rarely ask at that point. Do they? That's just rude. Yeah, it's like when you're flyering in Edinburgh. Um, it's very rare that people ask you how you are. And when they are, I'm like, oh, you need to come to my show now because you're a nice person. And I want you in the, I want you in the room. Yeah, and they never stop and just say thank you for that flyer. I really, li- I really like it. Thanks for that. It's beautiful. Do you know what? Thanks, thanks for spending extra on that GSM. Yeah, absolutely. And that spot UV, ooh, behave. Oh, well done. You, you've really outdone yourself to make sure this doesn't crumble in my pocket. Um, Kennedy, let's get going. Um, this is interesting. This is a fun way. So many times I will not ask people how they got in, into magic mentalism performing because uh, the the answer is often the same and, and Mr Paul Daniels is often responsible or or as we I interview younger and younger people it's Mr Blaine but um, you had quite an interesting uh, you began as a, a, a young tarot reader I think the reason I got into that and I, I, I literally can remember almost nothing about tarot now like I probably haven't done it since I was 15 16 years old but I was 14 I thought I don't know, I was, I remember I had quite gothy friends, but I wasn't very gothy myself. And there was this this place in Newcastle where uh, they used to all hang out and stuff, and these, these shops with all this dark clothing, which is all very mysterious and lovely. And, and there I was wearing a suit, because obviously I was born in a suit, like, you know, you know with a waistcoat and everything. Um, and... Uh, there, there was all these weird tarot cards. I remember there was there was these really interesting designed ones that I thought they're quite interesting, and I just like the pictures on them. And then I learned that actually these things are supposed to have meaning, and bought a book from the same shop. The shop was called Katmandu. I remember it very vividly, and uh, I, I learned how to read tarot. And then I used to do it from like my mum and my uh, my my auntie and my my mum's friends and stuff. And I was just I wasn't like doing any sort of reading on the person at all. I was literally just telling them the definitions of the card. So it was, it was probably fairly terrible, I imagine. Like, I bet it was bloody awful, actually. But so I was just telling them what the definition of the cards were, and they were, oh, that's really lovely. And as that, that's how it sort of began. But then, actually, my story does not start with Paul Daniels. My, well, it sort of does and doesn't. What happened was, 
I was watching Daniels on TV doing, and I know you, you don't usually want to talk about, ew, I start off with Paul Daniels, but it's kind of a weird one, this, because I watched Paul on TV and thought, oh, that's, that's all lovely. I really love it. We, you know, we used to watch, watch it as a family and stuff, but then I was never interested in doing it. I never thought, ooh, what I must do is learn a card trick quickly. Uh, I, I never had that sort of drive or, or stimulation. So what I did, so I just used to sit and watch the TV show, but then Max Maven came on the show. I thought, now... That's interesting. I could figure out and satisfy my teenage uh, teenage paranoia of by understanding how other people think. And that's how I got into this, actually. So, that, but that was the sort of a background be- before that in the sort of doing the tarot thing. Then I was watching the TV show and then, and then saw Max. And that's how it all sort of began for me, which is fascinating, I'm sure. <laughs> a few words on Max. He, we were lucky enough to get him on the podcast and it was probably one of my favourite days ever going to surprisingly rural Yorkshire to meet Max Maven when it was snowing outside and he was just such a lovely guy but I think you know if, if you were to to write this list of you know the, the top mentalists he, he's got to be at the top of most people's list how good is he Kennedy? I mean for me what's interesting is um, I remember sitting having a I think we were like having bloody breakfast or one of these things or whatever you know and and uh, we get on really really well we get we get along Fine, fine, fantastically, really. But and, and I said to him, I think there's an interesting thing that, but as performers, we're told that what we have to do is is be liked. You know, if you can go on stage and get the audience to like you, then you've sort of won, and that's kind of what after what the game's about. And I believe that Max probably did not feel the same way as as that as most performers do about that. And I have the same thing. As I said, I said to him, look, I'm not sure people need to like us. And he sort of sat up and 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 um, took his eyes off his whatever he was eating, and. And we sort of had a lengthy discussion about the fact that I don't think actually what we need to be is liked. I think what we need to be, and to quote Max himself, is that we need to be fascinating. And that's it. So, you know, you look at Blaine, who started a new generation of magicians. And then since then, I think, obviously, there's Dynamo came after that. But look at Blaine specifically. Would you watch his original specials and go, oh, I really like him. What a lovely lad. You, you wouldn't really do that. What you would do is go, he's really interesting. He's really fascinating. And so I think there's lots of different ways to be fascinating. And the easiest one is to be funny or is to be liked, but it is just one choice, right? So yeah, I mean, yeah, he, so yeah, he is fantastic. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about him is that he is just a fascinating character as a person and also as a performer. And so with your sort of early days, is that something that, that you were kind of looking to achieve to, to become this sort of mystical, fascinating um being so to speak because you know the first time you see a Max Maven you do sit up and look and whether it's, it's the makeup or the hair or the voice um, you're enthralled by him straight away were those kind of um, traits that, that you looked to add to yourself in early days yeah I, what I was not trying to do was be fun or funny or any of the things that I, I attempt to do these days what what I, what I was trying to do then was just to be like this really like sort of powerful kind of person where I would go on I didn't even say hello I got introduced please welcome Kennedy I'd walk onto the stage and point at something to say the gentleman there stand up I'd like you to think about and I was I wouldn't say hello or welcome or anything I was like straight into the material and then just leave at the end of the material there was no space for anybody understanding anything about me nobody understood any of my why or got too warm to me at all it was all just like kind of like aggressive mind reading for a bit and then i left and let and left them alone really so i think 
Was that inspired by him? Possibly. I was also a huge fan and friend of Bob Cassidy's as well before he passed away. And again, Bob was incredible at being that sort of magnetic kind of powerhouse of walk on and just sort of take over a space. And I was, I think I was heavily influenced by all of that. I think that was all just before Darren Brown became anything before, before I even, before he came on TV. And that's when that all was happening for me. So I was out doing that stuff and it was, it was fun working on that material because you could be very direct with people and, and, and I really enjoyed that. When Darren did, come on the scene with the the specials and, and, and his series. How, how big an impact did that have on you? Because I remember when David Blaine would do a new special, uh, we would get more calls of people wanting close-up magicians. And actually, it, it helped the general public think a little bit more outside the box of how they could have a magician. And they kind of stopped thinking about a magician is always on stage. And we were lucky enough when we were younger to get a lot of close up bookings, which is good because when you're first learning and maybe you don't have an hour long stage show, that's, that's a great way to work. So we certainly, I remember benefited from people ringing off and saying, we've seen David Blaine. We love that close up stuff. Can you come and, you know, just do some of that kind of stuff. Um, did, did Darren have, have a bit of an impact for you with regards to, to kind of people looking for this more, uh, psychological illusionist. So imagine a world, BDB, before Darren Brown, okay, where you would say to somebody, oh, so I remember my mum saying, oh, this is my son, he's called Kennedy. And people say, oh, what do you do? And I would say, I'm a mind reader. And they go, what? And I would say, they say, oh, so you're like a psychic? And I'd be like, nope. Oh, you're a magician? Nope. Illusionist? No. What the hell is that? And the problem is there was no frame of reference. There was no category which the brand fit into until Darren came around really. Because in the UK, we didn't have, we didn't have Dunninger, which the, the older sort of generation of Americans will have been able to form a reference to. We never really had that in the UK, particularly. We had we had Burglass, uh, of course, but I think there's been a, there was a massive gap, and I don't know how mainstream the Burglass shows were. And so I've certainly never in my career met anybody else who goes, "Oh, like David Burglass." Like I've never heard anybody say that before, even though Burglass was obviously a massive Im- influence on Darren and a lot of our work. So when Darren came around, it gave us all a definitely a frame of reference where people went, oh, it's like that. Okay. But also, of course, when when corporations or anybody sees this thing on TV, they go, oh, can we have something like that at our event? Because that makes their event modern, cool and trendy. So there's definitely that. And then, of course, came the flurry of, I mean, I think the printing industry probably exploded with magicians changing their business cards to psychological illusionist about the week after Darren aired on TV. So well done, the printing printing industry. And of course, that's all died down now and they're all back to doing their close-up magic and doing the things they normally do. And that's great, which I've never done. A lot, of, a lot of mentalists came from doing magic into mentalism. I, I've never done that. In fact, there's a lot of magic when I go to the very few magic conventions that I do go to, and when I, I'm only ever go to them really when I'm booked to be at them, which is rarely. And when I go to them and I see all this magic, I'm like, that's great. I don't really know how you got that ring off that string. Not entirely sure. I, do, I, do, I just don't know. I, that's not really my world at all. So that's quite a strange and interesting thing, I suppose, that I didn't come that way. I kind of want to get an understanding of your, of your early years then, of some of the early places you worked. Um, so paint this picture for us then. You've obviously, you know, had this interest in tarot, you've seen Max Maven, you've kind of learnt um, mentalism. Where were you and when did you first kind of start going out working? 
So the story is really that what happened for me. Well, so I remember I was playing around with this stuff. I'd picked up a copy of 13 Steps to Mentalism uh, by Corinda, and, and I was I was playing around with it. And then I went on a date with this girl called Laura. I really liked this Laura girl. She was she was really lovely. And we were in this bar. Well, it was a pub, actually. And I'm sitting there showing off some of this stuff because I thought, you know, the best way to woo a girl is to, like, do mind-reading tricks. That's the, that's the best way in the world of doing it, isn't it? Uh, so I was doing that stuff, and she, she nicked off to go to the loo or something. And while she was at the toilet, somebody else came over from the bar and said, that stuff you were doing there was amazing. And I was like, what? Like, like flirting badly? And he was like, no, no, that mind-reading stuff. Um, what, what, what is that? And I sort of talked about it for a couple of minutes. And he said, oh, we've got this event he sort of ran a little sort of theater company or something and he said we're having this end of show party upstairs in the the function room above this pub would you come and do something and i went yeah absolutely so that was great and then you know whatever and then i wake up the next morning and i have this awful hangover which is which is multiplied by the fact that I realise I've agreed to do 20 minutes of material when I don't have 20 minutes of material. I'm just a guy who knows, you know, a couple of billet moves and maybe, you know, a card trick out of a Corinda book. I've got to put 20 minutes of material together for the next, like, like a week or so's time, two weeks' time or something like that. And so I started putting together material. I remember on, on that show the only material i can remember doing is i did something where somebody i was doing something to do with a thumper where someone was thumping me some information and then uh, i think it was my dad actually who was thumping me the information and the other bit was um uh, i did jackpot coins you know that thing where you know how much money's in their hand and that's only, only two bits of information i can remember ever doing uh, in that show and it was awful like you look back at it and go, that was the worst thing ever but at the end of it you know, they all clapped and said, oh, that was lovely and everything. And I was being very serious and all that sort of stuff. That's the only way I knew how to be at the time because I was young and hadn't really found myself, never mind found my performing self. And somebody at the end came and said, that was really good. We've got this little, we've got this business, a little engineering company. Would you come and, I think it was an engineering company, maybe wrong about that, but anyway, would you come and do something for us? And I said, yes. And so I've never, I never really made the decision to become a mind reader or be a performer. I just sort of did it. I mean, I was an, I was sort of studying theater at, at university. I was always going to be an actor or a performer of some description, probably, unless I had to end up getting a job. But I never knew that was good. I never decided, oh, I, I, I saw that person on TV or I've seen this thing. I want to become like a, a successful performer of some of any description and make that my living. I never decided that. It just sort of kept happening. And then now all I'm doing is trying to make sure that I never have to get a job. It's what we're all doing, isn't it? We're all on that same path. Just like people go, what's your girls? You want to be famous? No, I just don't want to be employed. I just, I just want to get up in the afternoons. Two questions from that. Number one, what uni were you at and how did you, you find your, your time at university? But an possibly even more burning question, whatever happened to Laura? So uh, Laura is actually one of my best friends. Uh, it turned out that there was no romantic connection there. I was actually at her wedding last year. So um, so that's good. Uh, she's one of my best friends and she's phenomenal. Um, and more, uh, yes, yeah, so the university, um, I did a, I, I went to Northumbria University. I studied drama, hated every last second of it because I realised that 
generally at university they teach you the theories of the stuff that they learned that when they were at university and none of that is relevant whatsoever so finding yourself correcting your lecturers for a couple of years what and allowing yourself to realize they don't actually know what they're talking about uh, i've got this obsession with like why can't we just share real world stuff that's actually working now rather than talking about what would be lovely in an ideal world guess what nobody performs in the ideal world we perform in the world where there are people with drinks and people who you have other interests and you're not the sole complete attention of everybody in the room so you can't spend 25 minutes introducing a card trick about you know something emotional uh, and then people going oh that's lovely and at the end they go oh it's lovely you know you just told them it was the two of clubs and they don't care so for me it was about i really hated that about about universities that it was all very theoretical which i'm like well what what's the point in any of this is it going to help me be a better performer if the answer is no then why the hell are we all here? Then out of uni, did you look to go the acting road, or were you straight into performing? No, performing? I, I was. So I was doing. I was doing a bit of performing. And then when I was at university, uh, somebody, a producer, contacted myself and a couple of other performers, and and said, "Do you want to go on the road with this show?" And and we said yes, and off we went with this little sort of three person show thing um, around some small like little, little venue things. And so I no, I started performing, and I, I paid my way through uni pretty much by performing. So that's all I've ever done. It's really funny. I've never had a, I've never even, it's really, I feel like I've missed out in many ways. This is definitely not a booth. This is me like feeling like I missed out. I've never worked behind a bar. I've never been to a job interview. I've never served coffee or worked at McDonald's or anything like that. All I've ever done is show up to a gig and do mind reading stuff. I once worked in uh, Burger King for a small part. And when they found out I was a magician, they said, do you want to go out and do, do magic when it's busy? So I'd come into work and I'd get paid my normal Burger King rate, but I would do my magic act in around the tables. And I was like, this is a dream come true. I, yesterday I was making chicken royales and now I'm doing magic. But the problem was a few, you know, a few weeks later, people that you'd done trick to and been the great magician would come in and you'd be stood at the counter. And that's when I was like, I got to leave. I can't do this anymore. The Whopper Magician. There we go. Now that is that's a nickname I'll never be able to shake off. <laughs> In fact, I think everybody who's listened to this, we now need to tweet at you or however the hell we're supposed to contact you with uh, what a lovely whopper you've got. So you're on the road with this, this three-person t- um, show, and, and th- then what happened? Companies started getting in touch, going, oh, could you do something at our event? And I started doing annual dinners and annual conferences, doing the uh, doing awards dinners and all that sort of stuff. So that just started happening. And then I realised when people are looking for me, I should probably have a website that says that's what I do, get some nice business cards designed, and, and that's sort of where it went, really. This after, after dinner performing, this is what you could, you know, bunch into corporate work. And I know a lot of maybe our younger performers, because people have asked me before, they've said, yeah, I want to get into, you know, corporate, corporate gigs. What are corporate gigs? This is, makes then- me laugh, man. Being like, I want to work corporate. And I always say to people, so I've got this, yeah, I, I, I say to people, so I've got a membership um program called the entrepreneur performers in a circle which is like a community of people who are like wanting to do running a better business as an entertainer and it's a constant a constant discussion in in that community is i want to do corporate gigs and whenever i'm doing like a live q a with the members i say things like okay great so you want to do corporate what the hell does that mean so because it's very realistic it's like very real world like how are you going to do this not like let's dream about it and talk about let's do this right let's get the number of gigs you want so corporate work is that for you 
when you imagine doing corporate work, are you doing, are you standing at a trade show? Are you doing a, a keynote speech with a message? Are you doing light relief straight after lunch in the sort of graveyards shift where they need re-energizing? Are you the re-energizer? Are you launching products and do product launches? Are you doing after dinner at their annual awards dinner? Are you doing after dinner with a message maybe at their annual conference? And on and on and on and on and on. Are you doing bespoke presentation designs? Like what the heck are you doing within the corporate world? Because and within corporate, there's not just one market. Like you should also maybe specialize in which which bit of it and what size of business. So for me, I really specialize in after dinner at an annual dinner. So they have their annual general meeting or something like that and awards dinners. That's the two things that I'm really good at. And the only reason I've chosen those is not because one day I thought I'm going to do that. It's because I found out actually that's when I go down the best. That's when I can earn the income I want to earn and also get the best reception, which means they enjoy it the most. I'm really good at those two things. I used to be really good at the graveyard shift straight after lunch mid-conference. Mid I used to be really good at that. Also in, in corporate, there's uh, people who do emceeing and, and, and hosting of events. You can make really great income from doing that. And friends of mine are who, who do corporate stuff as well say oh you should do emceeing like the money's like amazing and i'm like yeah but like also my soul will die because i don't want to be standing there for a two-day conference going and your next speaker is jeff and jeff's bloody fascinating you're gonna love this but, oh look think of a word jeff it's bananas jeff's gonna talk about bananas and shoehorning crap tricks into an MC presentation it's just not for me whereas going on after dinner and doing 35 to 45 minutes of stuff that engages them and is corporate themed and all that sort of stuff. That's right up my street. I absolutely love that. I get a buzz off it. They get a buzz off it. I like the business model. I like talking to people like that. That's really good fun. You know, what are some of the sort of pros and cons then to, to dig a little bit deeper, you know, on, on this world of, you know, corporate after dinner gigs? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the pros are you can earn fairly good money and there are a lot of meetings and events. Like anybody who says, oh, I can't get work in corporate, then obviously you just need to figure out what your message is, your your brand, yourself, and your positioning, and then your marketing and the ability to be seen by people. Figure those things out. And there's a lot of work out there because there are thousands of events every day. So that's good. There's a demand. People want stuff. They need something new every single year. So that's a pro and a con. The good news is every year... All these event organisers, some of them experienced, some of them is poor Janet from accounts who's been lumbered with the job, and they all need a new entertainer every single year. That's great because you've got an opportunity for a new client. But the bad side of that is you get booked by that person this year, they're probably not going to book you next year for the after dinner. If you're doing an after dinner show, they want something new every year. They don't want to have it so like every year for 400 years, the company has the same ancient mentalist doing doing that doing that material. They, don't, they can't have that. They need to have, same, they have, need to have new stuff every single year so the, the downside of corporate is it's a constant you really need to figure out a really good brand a really good way of attracting an audience who who are the right people and then a really good way of turning that audience into inquiries and you need to have a systematic way of generating that time and time again and refilling it if you can't figure that bit out then that kind of corporate is not going to be good for you whereas if you think actually i want to do trade show corporate entertainment well you can work for the same company for 30 years i've got friends who have done that in the states who work for the same corporations for 30 or 40 years as their trade show entertainer stopping people on their trade show stand with entertainment and then linking in the message and then passing them on to the sales 
then you just need to have a handful of really good clients who will use your time and time again. Other bad stuff, I mean, you know, traveling, like, sucks. Like, it sounds lovely. Oh, you've been to all these fabulous places. Well, I have, but I've actually only seen the departure lounge of the airport in Newcastle, the flight, I've seen Terminal 5 at Heathrow, a load, and and, and, and obviously Amsterdam Schiphol as well a lot. And then I see the airport when I get the other end. I see the car that picks me up, the hotel that I perform at, and then the car that takes me back to the airport and so on and so forth. So I've seen loads of airports. And if that's your fetish, then crack on. It's lovely. You're going to have a lovely time. But for me, I would like to have seen a bit more of the world and spend less time traveling than performing sometimes would be lovely too. I mean, that would be the dream. So yeah, it's it's a little bit lonely. You know, you have to be just careful with yourself. I got to a bit myself into a bit of a, a glum place. I don't want to say, I don't want to use the, you know, I, I, you know, I don't want to get too down and dreary with it, but I got myself into a bit of a glum place, quite a glum place with traveling and being alone a lot start to get to me. I liked my own company when I started this game out, you know, about, what was it, 17 or 18 years ago. But then the last five years, I'm like, man, I just need to be around people I love and care about, you know? So so I, I really crave that now. So there is that. But again, what's nice about the, the, the positive on that is my... Well, while a lot of people are trying to get more and more gigs, my business model is different. And it is a business at the end of the day. Like, I'm trying to keep myself from ever having to get a job. And my, my kind of game that I'm playing, because I just think of it all as a game, the game that I'm playing is, can I get my fee up higher so that I can do less gigs? I want to do less gigs. I want to just spend more time at home. So if I can get to, my goal is to do two gigs a month. That's what I'm trying to get to. But while that sounds like, oh, is he only doing one gig a month? Because most people are trying to aspire to do more gigs. No, I'm trying to like have to take less gigs by getting my 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 brand into a place and my myself into a position where I can charge more than I am charging now so I can drop down the number of gigs. You mentioned the word brand twice in that ad, and I'm keen to dig in on your brand. But um, before then, you kind of mentioned wanting to get reduced um, your amount of gigs. How many shows are you doing? On average, across my year, I like to do two. Uh, that's my goal. Two a week um, is what I'm sort of averaging out as my goal. But sometimes greed gets the mo- more of me. I don't just mean greed for the income. I mean greed for the, oh, that's a good client name to put on my website, you know, or oh, that's a really nice place to go to. The emotion of that get to overtakes, and sometimes I do take on another, you know, more than more than two. But in general, I'm, I'm aiming for two, and I'm trying to, like, be good about it. Super. And as I said, you mentioned brand a few times. You do have a very clear brand when I, you know, popped on your website to kind of do a bit of research for this. You know, there's a very clear brand on there. Your hair makes you stand out. You've got the, you know, uh, bleach blonde hair. As you mentioned, born in a suit, you, you're very well dressed. Was this kind of a case of actually you built your brand from sort of who you were as a person or did you kind of more think what do I want to represent? I wish I knew, I wish I had a really clever answer going well I sat down and I figured out what the market wanted and it's not true though. What happened is I knew that I wanted to have a, an image that people would remember. I was actually, uh, too much information for you here now but I was having a shower the other morning and I was thinking about brand um, and I was thinking what is a brand? And for me, a really good way of thinking about your brand is what are the fewest number of words someone has to say in order for the other person to go, oh, that's him or her. So I thought mine might have been funny mind reader white hair. That's what I thought it might be. Turns out if you just say mind reader white hair, that's all I am, right? So 
anything so that's that's the fundamental bit of me which basically tells me the things i should never change unless i want to shift brands completely and forget this one so just make sure you don't like kill your brand by accident by making a a quote-unquote strategic thoughtful shift which will actually just kill off what you've built up so so i know that i can never not do mind reading and and i cannot change my hair those are the two things that I can't change. Everything else I can change. So if I decide the comedy thing is not really working out, I can be serious or mysterious or aggressive or any of the other things. But I can change everything else apart from mind reader and white hair. So I can change those two things. The way the mind reader, sorry, the way the the, the white hair thing came about was actually a friend of mine, my, one of my best friends, Alex, who's a, a, a screen and stage writer. He writes plays and, and, and film and, and TV shows. He... Uh, he, he and I have been friends for like since we were kids. We were sat down in his parents' lounge one day and I was talking about this mind reading thing and I had most of it figured out. I said, I just need to figure out what he, how he sort of dresses and what he looks like. And his mum's like really trendy and really cool. And she went away to the kitchen to get us a glass of water or something because we were chatting away. And she came back in and she had a picture of Billy Idol and she put it down in front of me and said, you should do that with your hair. And I went, wow. Because I was like a really conservative, quite, quite a sort of quiet kid really and would never really stand up to anybody and didn't want to stand out for sure. And I thought, wow, I could do that. So it started off doing it sort of much more blonde. And then as time went on, I didn't like the blonde thing so much. So it's now very much white, my hair. So that just gives it a bit more like, it doesn't look like I've just bleached it and it doesn't look as sort of cheap as the blonde did, I suppose, back in the day. So uh, that's where that all came from. And then of course that means with my brand of the Im- the image part of my brand means I will win some gigs because of that, because I don't look like the, and this is client speaking, not me. I don't look like the boring corporate guy, but also I lose some gigs because I look too edgy or too unsafe or too whatever. So you'll win some and lose some and that's okay because because you wouldn't have won the ones you, you're winning if you hadn't lost the ones you were losing as well. Going to your friend's house and uh, taking influence from your friend's mother's uh, favourite pop stars aside, what advice would you give to someone who's looking to, you know, whether it's tailor their brand or, or design their own brand? Sure, yeah. So I have a, I have a, fr- I have a framework that I, I share with people, and that is this. To think about what do you want people to say about you after you've left them? Because remember, big actually, before I tell you the rest of these steps, what your brand is, is not what your logo is. It's not what your hair is like. It's none of those things, right? It's these It's these four things, right? Or actually three things, I think, mostly apply to this. And that is, it's what people say about you. So if you're funny, they must mention you're funny. If you are uh, witty, they'll say that. If you're scary or if you're arrogant or if you're um, meek or whatever you might be. So it's what people say about you, what people think about you, and what people feel about you. They're the three things that if you could, if you just sit and write down what do they say, think, and feel, if you write those three things down um, and then just brainstorm as many words as you can think that really genuinely apply to you with those three things, then you'll have a really good document to send to like some kind of branding person or designer in order to build you a brand. So... That's one of the, and obviously, for example, one of my things is about originality. So I needed to make sure that my brand was not a version of something that's really cliche. So no brains, no, you know, people pointing at their temples and, and it's an evolution as well. One of the things, um, most of our, you know, most of us were friends with, uh, with, with Eugene Berger. And one of the things that Eugene and I talked about a lot was, was that you have to 
mature your material, your brand, and your performance as you mature. So it's interesting to make sure that when you decide on it, anyway, my brand about five years ago was very, very different. It was very literally animated illustration, quite gregarious, because I was going for the like the really offensive mind reader angle. Whereas now I'm actually not offensive at all because I'm much more embedded in the corporate world where I'm edgy, but never offensive. So I like, I'm right on the edge and I talk to people in a certain way, but I get away with it because it's charmingly offensive rather than, rather than actually offensive, which is what I used to want to go for. So the brand and the imagery, the colors, the logo, the words that are used, the, the way we take photographs, the suits that I wear, the material I choose, literally everything is decided by the brand. It's interesting that, that you say that because uh, when, when we started out, we very much wanted to be, you know, this anarchic double act, highly influenced by um, sort of Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson. But as we've, as we've grown older and, and wanted to work in more places, we've, you know, we've had to tone that down, but we, we still want to keep that energy. And um, we work at a lot of holiday parks where you have to be totally on the line you can't cross it sometimes that can be a little bit little bit difficult I wonder for you um how hard is it to always stay the right side of the line it's easier now but I've definitely crossed the line and regretted it I mean not not nothing awful's ever happened but I've had like <gasps> oh, you go, oh I've actually upset somebody and had to go apologize somebody after the show definitely done that definitely but I think that's going to happen if you are improvising, if you are like doing anything where it's not a where you're taking a where you're moving away from the script, you are taking the risk that that bit, joke, bit of business, whatever it's going to be, is either not going to go well, so it's just not going to be funny, it's going to be rubbish, or it's going to offend somebody, or it's going to be out of character. And I think I've definitely done it. I think I'm better at it than ever because I've worked at it. Like I'm very conscious of some of the stuff that I've said in the past. I think, wow, why would you ever say that? Like literally my toes curl thinking about some of the jokes that were in my show, in the script. Never mind ad-libs I've probably done that I've thought, that I've forgotten about. So it is hard. It is hard to be on that line, but it depends on what you want as well. Like I used to think it was a successful performance if I had one... <gasps> joke like that's what i was going for so i was doing like really topical like what's just happened in the news that's horrendous right i'm gonna do a joke about that tonight or tomorrow kind of thing so that's what i was going for but now i would just never ever do that like it just wouldn't even come to my head to do that i now do stuff that's self-deprecating it's about people and for me my material now is about the relationship between me and people and it's not really about just how wonderful I am it's actually more about putting me down and I have like I've set up some rules as well which is really inspired by by other performers gotta definitely give credit for Ian Rowland for pulling me up on this because we had a long discussion about how you know about doing jokes about people from the audience or, or people who are participating in your show and we talked about creating a positive dynamic of people wanting to join you on stage rather than you point to somebody and them going, oh no, not me. What I really want is people to want to come on stage. And the way I've done that is I will poke fun at people and rip them to pieces kind of gently, much, much more gently these days, but I will poke fun at people and make jokes at people's expense if they are in the audience. So they're in a sea of safety among other people and most people can't see them. So they've got their back to the majority of the room or they, they, they're in their seat. 
But if you come on stage with me where you're in front of everybody, the jokes will be about how you are better than me. So I'll talk about being intimidated by you or how you're much better looking than me or you whatever. So it's all at my expense and bigging them up in a subtle way. It's not, I don't get them off the stage and tell them they're wonderful for a bit. They're all jokes still and they're still funny, but they're up there at my expense. Whereas if you're in the audience and I'm the person in the spotlight, now I can do stuff at your expense. And it just subtly sets up a dynamic of when I invite you on stage, you're like, yep, I want to be on stage because I'm safer up there than I am down here. That's a brilliant philosophy and I think- think that's um that's something that a lot of performers will be able to benefit from that that idea there uh, i think that that's incredible you you kind of mentioned a few times in in that answer about you know the way you communicate with people um ad-libbing going off script and stuff how, how scripted is your show my show's a hundred percent scripted uh well when i say it the show is scripted each piece of the show is scripted so each routine is scripted and then there's like i usually have a bit somewhere near the beginning that relates to something that's going to happen towards the end and that might just be a bit of script that i call back on or it might be a routine usually it's a bit, just a bit of script I think in my, in, my, in my show right now, it is just a piece of script. But what I do is depending on the audience, and that's the audience size and what kind of industry they're in or what I'm performing at, I will change the content of the show. But each piece of content slots in and is in it of itself scripted. So the whole show is scripted, but what it means is I can go, actually, I don't think that that routine, my Mr. Golden Balls routine, where I get people up and do a lie detection thing, that's not really going to work tonight because of the stage is not, I haven't got that much space on stage because there's a lectern there, so I'm going to switch that out for this other bit, and it just means I don't go, oh, which, where in this, the script am I? I don't have the script, I have scripts for each bit. Obviously, performing in these kind of environments, you're performing often, often for some very, you know, large clients. There's some pretty important people in the room. Um, you know, as you mentioned, if you're doing an award do, then, you know, there might be up to 200 to 300 new companies that might book you for, for their do. So you kind of always want to be on, on your A, A level. Um, how do you work at bedding new material in? I'm terrified of it. I'm actually currently working a new piece in at the moment. And it literally, I feel sick before I go on. And I still look, I have the, the new bit there ready to go. And I always have the, the classic, the, the trusted pieces next to it. And I'm not going to lie. I've once or twice, more than once or twice, reached for the old bit and gone, oh, I wanted to get through the gig because uh, I want it to be good. It's terrifying. The way I embed new, embed new material in is I put it in the middle somewhere and I just do my best and I realise that every show is a rehearsal for the next show and that's a good way of doing it. Another way of, I mean, I start off new material depending on what the material is. So most of my material involves groups of people. Very little of my stuff you could do one-to-one just because I don't like to do that much material that way. I like to involve lots of people. So it's difficult to rehearse that like just ooh with some mates down the pub or something going hey think of this do this write that down do this peek that thing or whatever i can't really do that so it's literally a case of doing what i do the the places that i do that though are a sort of different gigs so what i do is so let me just give you a little a bit of business philosophy to make make this make sense and maybe not sound like too much of an idiot 
I have my gigs that I do at my rate card rate, the price that I want to be charging. Anytime I do a gig for less than that amount, then I see that as a marketing activity and not a gig. So it doesn't count towards the number of gigs that I'm doing a year. It counts as a marketing activity to get me more gigs, right? So if that means you've got to go and do a gig for exposure, that's fine, but it does not count towards how many gigs you've done that week. So I could be out seven nights this week, but if I'm only getting paid my proper rate for two of them, that means I've only done two gigs this week. The rest of them is marketing activity, okay? So so I have a gig coming up this uh, this weekend, and it's a little local pub, and they've got this function room, they've sold tickets, all that stuff. I'm getting a nominal fee. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, it's a nice amount of money. It's going to pay for a nice little trip to London or something for a long weekend. So it's a nice chunk of money, and I'm, I'm very respectful of that and grateful for it. But I see that as an opportunity to work in new material. So I'll open with something solid that I know is going to get the audience in, 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 sort of on board, and I'm going to build rapport with them, and it's going to go well, and it's going to build their confidence in me, build my confidence in the group and the material, and then I'll segue into to the new piece. And the big thing for me is I can't say in my head, right, and then at some point between then and the end, because I'm going to finish with something that's solid as well and already worked in, I can't say to myself, and at some point in the middle, I'll drop this new piece in. No, I can't do it because I'll just not do it. I'll just go, oh, well, it just didn't feel right. It's never going to feel right. It's always going to feel awful until it is right. So what I have to do is I have to say, right, and once I've done that bit, then at that point, I'm then going to go into the new bit and just, so that's where I put it in, and that's sort of the environment. Does that answer your question, or did I just totally do a politician on you? I think I'd answered it. No, that was good. Yeah, that was that was very good. Um, it does leave me with one more question <laughs> on, on the subject. Uh, in a moment, I do want to talk about um, you, your relationship and how you work with other performers, because I know you've, you work with a lot of other performers, and it's something that you're very passionate about. But yeah. I'm interested to know what your inspiration is for new pieces of material. Do you kind of think... I need to write something new and scour old books or, you know, is there other things that inspire you? I, I do love old books. I don't really buy any new stuff. Um, I'm very, very lucky in that I get sent a few th- things from people who are releasing new stuff. That's very lovely. I love that. It's great. But I, yeah, I'm obsessed with reading all that old, all the older stuff, you know, the old bound magazines, Pabular and uh, the Jinx and all that sort of stuff. I've got all them and I, I do reread them regularly and I'm constantly reading one of them. So I do that. But my main inspiration actually comes from brainstorming sessions with a friend of mine who I, I mentioned before, Alex, who is a screen and TV and, and theatre writer. We literally meet up pretty much every Thursday, although he's currently on honeymoon. So it's been we had a three week hiatus from it. And we 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 work on each other's material. So he'll be he's currently writing a play, a musical for somebody for a celebrity with their music. And I'm helping him out with that. And. And then and then we'll work on it. He'll say, "Oh, what have you thought about this as a premise and that as a premise?" And because he's completely outside of this world, he's got nothing to do with magic or mentalism or anything like that. He'll say, "Wouldn't it be good if?" Or, "What do you think this is a premise?" Or, and then from his premise, I can usually figure out what is the effect going in there. So that's one way. I also look at just like what's happening in the world. And also I've just fairly recently uh, in the last year, I would say started reading fiction. I've never, I'd never read a proper fiction book by choice apart from at school, which was not by choice. 
ever until about a year ago. And from reading fiction, I'm getting many more ideas as well. So just look at it. What's a premise? Like if everything, if you look around and everything is a premise for something, that's where I like to start. I don't really start with the trick or the method. Although sometimes if I'm wandering around a magic convention and I see a prop, I'm like, that's not a mentalism prop, but how could it be? Almost like writing the instructions for a mentalism prop or writing instructions for any prop or a thing or whatever is sort of my process. And then just look at what's interesting as well. So I'm currently writing a show for somebody and it's got a very particular theme. And then it's just a case of like throwing lots of ideas of what what does that theme mean to me? And then doing some research with some friends and saying, what does that theme to mean to you? And then all these words that come up and say, okay, what is that? What, what would that be? And what, what? And then eventually figuring out what's the effect that's within there. What's What becomes amazing about that? What becomes interesting about that? What's the hook? And, and then finally, figuring out how that effect relates to the performer. And that's the big thing I think a lot of us miss. And that I see a lot, when I'm, when I'm working with somebody and writing a show for them or writing a keynote with them, or something like that. The big thing I I really push hard on is this is a great trick. This is a really good routine. But what the hell's it got to do with you? And how and why do why does your character care about it? Why has he or she got an a right to have an interest in that? So there's a relationship between that because now it means the character makes sense presenting that piece of material. How many times have we seen somebody do that trick where they go, I've got a photograph of my great granddad in my wallet and he's holding a single playing card. And you're like, yeah, this just doesn't smell right. Everyone can, everyone knows that's just not true because there's no truth and there's no connection and there's no, you don't have a right to be, your character, your character has not got a right or an interest in that in that piece of material. So you've got to find that link. And I think that's a really critical missing part for a lot of us. You mentioned writing for other people. We've had uh, Robert Temple on the show, Chris Cox as well. I know you've worked with both of those guys. Um, Talk to me about, um, you know, the differences, I suppose, in in writing for yourself and writing for other people. It, It must be quite freeing. Yeah, I love it. I write for Rob Temple, the hypnotist, so I come up with material for him, and and as well as as well as routines for his hypnosis show, I come up with writing the jokes and also the theatrical structures around those things, so we can do things a bit differently, which is interesting for Chris. So uh, I'm writing. I've mainly written for Chris's TV stuff, but also for um, I'm, I'm currently working on some of his live stuff as well for both his performance in The Illusionists and also for his own stuff. And then I'm also writing with Keith Barry for his um, for various projects of his, including TV special and um, his theatre tour and his keynote. So like, and I've I've written for a few other people over the years, people you you perhaps haven't heard of as well. Um, So, uh, and I only only mention those people because you've heard them and you know that's going to get everyone nodding going, oh, I know who those people are. Whereas if I said, you know, (laughs) this guy, you'd be like, I don't know who that is. Um, So what I like about that is getting somebody else's character and then bringing together my experience of practical performance of mentalism and mysterious stuff so magic as well uh, I can help them you know with the practical performance of that stuff but then creating mentalism which I'm quite good at as well but also my theatrical training and understanding well how do we make that powerful how do we make that softer how do we make that interesting how do we have light and shade how do we how do we bring all these things together to make it so it's a performance and I love bringing all those things together and working on it and rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it because most of us when we, when we create material we just write it once we write this is the trick and this is the script and you go great 
now how does it fit in the show great now how does it stand up how do you put it on its feet and then how does that relate to the thing before it how does it relate to the thing after it how does it relate to the whole thing how does it relate to your character how and what and what moments can we take advantage of to make it more deceptive how do we take advantage of its position in the show to make it more interesting and so i think by doing that with other people it's really i find it so rewarding when you come up with something and so i've released a number of books under the name ken dine i'm sure people know that and um and one of the things that's really nice about doing that is the moment your peers say wow, this is a really special thing. I'm really excited to do it. That's what's really interesting. You walk on stage, you do a piece of mentalism and the audience applaud and think it's amazing because they don't know how it's done and they think it's amazing and they think they think it's really impressive and that's great. But when your peer says, I know, because, you know, you, everybody, you know, we all know quite a bit, don't we? And they're really pleased with how something comes together. There's just a real buzz around that. And then getting seeing somebody get so much joy out of doing that is just the best feeling. How do you find the process of writing uh, a book? The reason I wrote my, fir- my my main book that people I think might know me for, which is Ben, uh, the reason that happened was I have I have a really poor memory. And a lot of people say that, but I, I genuinely do have a really poor memory. Um, and it, it means I have to write down every idea and every script, every idea, every method idea, every, every idea I have has to go into my digital notebook, which is just a, a Google document. And what happened was I was doing a cruise ship gig and I was I was stuck on this ship for seven weeks doing one show a night. No, one show a week for seven weeks. So seven, I was away for seven weeks and I only performed seven times. So I was absolutely going crazy. And for three of each of those days every week, we were in a port in Russia in St. Petersburg. And it meant I could not leave the ship unless I was going on a tour. For the first two weeks, I went on the tours. After that, you don't need to see St. Catherine, um, Catherine's Palace and all these beautiful places. You, you're just stuck on a ship, right? Um, so I've got five weeks of sitting on this ship. I thought, what am I going to do? So I bought myself a very expensive, overpriced internet plan from the cruise ship company. And I got access to that Google document and I thought, you know what it is? I'm not going to use some of these ideas anymore. I've moved on from that idea and and so why not I share it? So I started sitting, I just wrote up and rejigged those ideas to make them legible and understandable to other people. And then I had a thought. I thought, so this is a book about entertainment. So I've taught them what the, I've shared people what the effect is. I've shared a bit about the background of why it was created and I've shared the method. So this is what it looks like. This is why it's interesting to me and might be interesting to you. And finally, this is how you do it. And that's all lovely. But wouldn't it be really interesting to write the whole thing again, but make it actually interesting and enjoyable and fun to read? So I wrote the whole thing again. And that meant that all the way through there's actual comedy in the book. I say comedy, depends on what your taste is, really. But it's fun, it's interesting, it's irreverent, it's uh, to read. So that's my that my process of writing the book was very much about taking ideas that I've, I've used and used in the past, assembling them in a way that's interesting to read, and then making them enjoyable to read. So all my stuff, I, I make sure that it's enjoyable to read. Outside of magic, it, it sounds like you've got such a busy, busy work life trying to avoid having a job um, with, with the mentalism and, and working with other people. Um, what, what do you do out, outside of, of mentalism? 
I do have quite a few things, actually. I've, I've got a very short attention span. And what's nice is once you've got a system that allows you to just have inquiries coming in and, and turn them into bookings, it doesn't take that much nurturing and that much time, actually. So I actually have quite a bit of spare time. So my favorite, my passion project is my thing called the Entrepreneur Performers in a Circle, which is a community I've assembled of just lovely performers from all over the world, all different types of performers from children's entertainers up to corporate mentalists to jugglers and musicians, all kinds of performers around the world. And um, I write a newsletter for them every single month of about 10,000 words where I share business and marketing and stuff like that, which gets mailed out physically to people every single month. So I write that every month as well as do an online video training for them every month. So that's my passion project, Entrepreneur Performers in a Circle, epic. Um, the other thing I, uh, I do is I op- I'm obsessed with theatre. So uh, we go to the theatre, my girlfriend Emma and I, we go to the theatre every, pretty much every week because you've got to do something, haven't you? So, uh, so yeah, so we go to the theatre a lot and just enjoy seeing plays and musicals and really weird stuff and whether we're going to London to do that or just here in Newcastle at our local theatres around the region. So I think it's really interesting that I, I love performing and I love watching other people perform, whether I've written that stuff or I'm just enjoying what it is. And you get so much inspiration from watching other performances of everything for, oh, I could be a better performer if I stood like that. And why is that person standing like that? Why have they, why have they put the lighting like that? And, and just looking at and being and, and, and getting, a, allowing yourself to absorb lots of different performance arts will make you a better performer, whether you're a stage performer or a closer performer or whatever the hell you do you will be a better performer if you just watch more great performance. The problem is when you go to magic conventions, you're probably not seeing the greatest performers in the world. You, you might be seeing some of the better magicians in the world, but you're certainly not seeing the best performers in the world. And so really to become a really great performer at what you do, you need to see the greatest performers in the world and start seeing performance from outside of our little art form because it's only a subset of the performance arts. So go see some of that. A fantastic bit of advice to finish on. Um, unless there's anything else you'd like to add that I that I've kind of not mentioned, or anything else coming up that we need to know about. No, I mean if you want to like check what I you know what I'm doing, I'm sure you'll find me. If you just look me on look me up under Ken Dine K E N D Y N E on online then if I can help you out with anything if you've got any questions about any of the stuff that I've raised I'm dead happy to, to help out in any way that I can fantastic well thanks for joining us on Talking Tricks thanks thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cain and Abel please rate review and subscribe to the podcast